Hello and welcome to What Is My Podcast About? This podcast is us trying to find out if we can find out just what that topic might be. My name is Keith Ramsey, and as always, I am joined by Peter Akerley. Hey! And Matthew Grace. Hello. Today's topic is the final movie of the Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Spider-Man Far From Home. What a fantastic movie. I'll admit, going into this, I was a bit off about how we just finished with uh, Endgame. Really kind of a closing to the series. It felt like it, like that was the jumping off point for a lot of people. Yeah. But I think this being the final movie does do a lot of justice to the series. And it's kind of like a, what they were, a lot of people thought they were going to do with hints to the future. This movie was definitely that for the end of phase three. Yeah. Um, I completely agree. I don't think this movie would have made a great start for phase four. I think it makes for a much tidier end to phase three. I'll kind of get into why I think about that uh, a little bit later on, but I definitely really enjoyed the movie, and I think it fit really well as the final movie for Phase 3. And to be fair, this isn't the first time they've done it as well. Uh, if you remember, Ant-Man ended off Phase 2, where uh, the same way that this one is ending off Phase 3. Yeah. Uh, so for today, I want to talk about just kind of the movie up to this point, uh, a lot of the character development and uh, things that we might find within the Spider-Man stories moving forward, but also, more importantly, a look back and what parts of this movie imply or might even suggest when we look back over the series. Uh, I kind of want to talk about the opposite, which is everything that this does to build up where the MCU is going to go, because even though this wasn't the start of Phase 4, it did a lot of kind of laying the groundwork for the future of the MCU, and so I kind of want to talk about where the MCU is going based off of this point. And I'd like to uh, bring in a few comments about how this movie was, in large part, just wrapping up and tying off closed loose ends of all the mistakes that Tony Stark made in his past, all the enemies that he made, and how everything's just started to affect what's now after the time of Tony Stark. So based on my understanding, it sounds like, Keith, you're talking about a lot of the before the movie. Matt, you're talking about a lot of the during the movie, and I'm talking about a lot of the after the movie. <laughs> Seems <laughs> sense. pretty fitting. Now, the only logical thing is to start with Matt, which is during the movie. Now, I'm not saying that as a joke. That's because to understand what happens before yeah. and after, we need to know what happens. We have movie. to have the context of the movie itself. So, Matt, do you yeah. want to give us a rundown on uh, just a run what the idea of the movie and what happened? So, essentially, the movie starts off with Peter Parker very comfortable and situated in his role as the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man now. He's made up for his mistakes that he made in the first movie, and Tony Stark trusts him now. Well... The late Tony Stark put his trust fully into Peter Parker and ended up handing off to Peter essentially the keys to the most powerful weapon system in the entire world. Which I must say, if Captain America was still around, imagine if he knew about that oh, <laughs> during Civil War. Oh my would have been like shit in his pants. Also, I love that it's called Edith, which is short for even in death, I'm the hero, which is so quintessentially Tony Stark. <laughs> Him and his acronyms. Yeah. Which is another main point of the plot, because the main villain is one of Tony's enemies that he ended up inadvertently making in the past, because the main enemy was an employee of Tony Stark, who uh, spent his entire life doing this research for Tony on this whole augmented illusionary reality type machinery. Slightly belated spoiler alert, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie yet, because... The trailers do everything to indicate that Mysterio is a good guy in this movie. 
I suppose it's not really a spoiler, because if you have any understanding of the comics at all, you know for a fact Mysterio is not a good guy, and he's absolutely just tricking everyone into believing he's a good and guy. And even the movie pre-show spoiled it for me. As soon as they showed Mysterio on screen and asked, who is this? I'm like, he's obviously the villain. It's yeah. one of the Sinister Six. Not as popular as Dr. Octopus, but definitely more well-known than the Shocker. Yep. But, uh, yeah. So Tony ends up giving his creation the acronym BARF, and ended up firing the guy. So him and a couple of other colleagues who had it out for Tony devised this huge master plan to paint Mysterio as the new Iron Man, the new hero that everyone should look up to. Uh, which I must say, definitely that scene was done amazingly. Oh, the, the, big, the, the big reveal? reveal yeah. Yes. yeah, that was phenomenal. Just watching Peter walk out of what looks like a nice bar that's well populated i'm watching the illusion slowly fade and everyone who's remaining is just like a depressed scientist scientist who had their back stabbed by tony stark and it's just like him slowly starting that evil laugh it's a phenomenal scene and even bringing back a character from iron man one, one. that was yeah. uh, got yelled at by jeff bridges yeah he got yeah. yelled at by jeff bridges was on screen for maybe 30 seconds and then was never seen again and bringing him back as a character for this movie Phenomenal. Even the same actor. Amazing. Yeah, the uh, Tony Stark built this in a cave with scraps guy. Yeah. And that just goes to show that they didn't forget all of the little people throughout the entire cinematic universe. So anyone that these heroes could have slighted. Tony Stark, the pinnacle that he was and how much everyone loves him. Not everyone loves him. He made some enemies. He wasn't aware of it at the time, maybe, because of how self-centered he seemed at the time. But these people, when they come together, they can be dangerous, as evidenced in this movie, where planned to kill essentially half of London at the end of the movie, make himself look good in the process by stopping the fake evil monstrosity he created. And also uses as the chance to kill off Nick Fury, Maria Hill, and anyone else who would be a risk. Yeah, anyone who could know his secret. Which at this point also includes several high school students. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, was one of Peter's faults and also led to him growing a little bit more character-wise. Speaking of Peter's growth, that's a weird sense to say as a person named Peter. Can I just start off by saying that? But, uh, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Is your Peter tingle going off? Fuck you, Matt. That, that's my response to you. Um, I love how this one kind of mirrored... Uh, Homecoming, but in reverse, where Homecoming was all about Peter wanting to become a full-blown Avenger, whereas all of the people who, like, were in charge of that decision were trying to tell him, no, stay a kid, stay in high school, grow as a person to become the hero we need in the future, and by the end of the movie, he accepts that and realizes, alright, I'll wait, I'll just be a kid for now. And then we get to this movie, and everyone around him is trying to push him into becoming the next Tony Stark and becoming the leader of the Avengers. And he's just like, no, 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 I just want to be a kid. I want to find a girl I like and tell her that I like her from the Eiffel Tower with a necklace that she really likes. And everyone's like, no, you got to be the new Iron Man. And by the end of the movie, he kind of comes to the realization of that's who he needs to be. And it's very yeah. perfectly mirrors uh, Homecoming. Oh, definitely. Sense. The growth of Peter in this movie was done very well. And... The situation he was put into where everyone's trying to force him to being this hero fits so well because after Endgame, it's kind of up in the air where all the characters are. So going to this movie, it actually felt like there's no one around. The, the connection that was there where characters are always showing up in each other's movies and helping each other and joking around, it feels like that's gone now. Like, everyone's separated. They don't have those connections. The original team that drew everyone together is just scattered. Yeah. And I'd also <laughs> like to add that uh, in Far From Home, 
there are a lot less cringy moments. Like, you know that moment that everyone hates to see in a movie where a character is doing something that you know is completely stupid, but they're doing it anyway, and everyone is going to be, like, upset or disappointed in what happens. Like that one scene in Harry Potter where he speaks Parseltongue for the first time, and everyone's <laughs> like, you freak. Was there one of those in the Spider-Man movie? I do not remember. There, there, were, there were like one or two at the beginning where he was being very hormonal teenagery and just being really wishy-washy with whether he should be with his class or actually do the right thing as a hero. I, I was so glad that after like the first 15-20 minutes of the movie, those moments were gone, essentially. Whereas they were throughout the entire first Spider-Man movie. Like, I had a hard time watching that movie just because of all those moments. I hate seeing those moments. <laughs> to be fair, I kind of... I respected those moments because they make sense in this film. He's he's a 16-year-old kid, and having him be fully on board with throwing away his personal life and diving headfirst into superherodom is a very risky position for him to take. So I kind of respect his desire to just, like... Be a kid for a little bit longer. Like, think about his arc as a character. He starts off as just a kid who gets bitten by a spider, invents web shooters, and starts, like, fighting crimes a little bit uh, on YouTube. Gets found by Tony Stark. And Tony Stark's the first, like, not the first father figure he has, but the first one we get to see him have. And he clearly, like, latches on to Tony from that point. Like, even the very beginning of Homecoming... Tony goes to open the car door, and Peter's like, oh, yes, the hug I've always wanted. And Tony's like, nope, nope, just open in the door. Let's get out. Uh, and, and that's definitely one of the fun things about this Peter, too, where it's very rare we get an actual, like, for the most part, like, Tom Holland is also not a teenager at the moment. Uh, so he's the closest we've had to, like, the youngest Peter as well. And I feel where we've had the, you know, origin story of we see Ben die and him getting his powers and learning how to control his powers, where we've skipped over that. They've still gone for a type of growth form, but in this time it's not him becoming Spider-Man, but him growing into the Spider-Man we all know. The one yeah. who's confident in himself, quippy, making jokes as he's beating up bad guys. This one is still very much, he doesn't trust himself, he's awkward. He has the powers of Spider-Man, he somewhat knows how to use them, but he just doesn't have the confidence. He's not prime Spider-Man yet, and that's what I feel we're building up to with these movies. I also really love kind of the division between Peter Parker and Spider-Man, where like, Spider-Man is quippy, and like all that fun stuff with the villains around him. Whereas Peter Parker is just an incredibly awkward human being. And you can kind of, to the point where you can tell the difference between them, regardless of whether or not he's wearing the suit. At the beginning of the movie, when Aunt May is doing her fundraising at a homeless shelter, or something. I, it was it's some the sort of, displaced people who lost uh, their homes. People who the, lost their homes the because of the blip, blip, as we're now calling it. She has her fundraiser there, and she brings out... Peter Parker. She does not bring out Spider-Man. She brings out Peter Parker because he's awkward as all heck up on stage there. And then people start asking about what's going to happen now that Iron Man's gone. And that kind of brings me back to his arc, which is he has this father figure, once again, who's there, who's showing him all the care and attention he needs, who knows he's a superhero and helps guide him through this superhero life, which is something he really needs because he started so young, to having Tony Stark just die saving the world after losing five years of his life. He's clearly traumatized to the point where, like, every time he sees Tony Stark's face, he clearly, like, breaks up inside a little bit because he he needs to mourn the loss of Tony Stark before he can worry about the loss of Iron Man. Yeah. And it doesn't help that, for instance, at that fundraiser event right at the beginning of the movie, all of the news reporters are constantly bombarding him whenever they get a chance. Are you going to step up to be the next Iron Man? We know Iron Man kind of 
looked at you like a child figure, like a new prodigy. So are you going to fill his shoes? Are you going to be our next hero that we so desperately need? Yeah, and the world does seem very desperate in need of heroes because almost everyone's kind of Thor's off on another world traveling with Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, you know, Black Panther's not really a superhero in this world yet. He's just kind of in charge of Wakanda. No one really knows who Doctor Strange is. So as far as most people are concerned, all their superheroes are gone. Yeah. We got Hulk. That's what we got left. And yeah. Nick Fury does not want Captain Marvel name invoked. <laughs> Technically, Talos doesn't want uh, uh, Captain Marvel's name invoked. That makes a lot more sense now that I've... <laughs> when you see the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. definitely. And and the idea of talking about the growth of Peter as well. Picking Mysterio for the villain of this movie Phenomenal. worked so goddamn well for this. And it was definitely a risk, too, because Mysterio, more often than not, is a very goofy, weak character that doesn't have really anything going for him. He's a special effects wizard that got too extreme in Hollywood and they fired him. He's like, I'll show them. I'll become the best hero yeah. in the world. And they kept his plot pretty spot on. Just the only difference now is... Instead of he, him being focused on special effects, he created a holographic system to save all the world's problems. Yeah. And this, they did Mysterio in such an amazing way for this movie that I felt like it worked so well and he didn't seem cheesy or weak. Like, of course, even Peter figures out at some points, like, he's just a normal guy. I just need to get to him. When I get to him, it's over. Fight's done. But the ch- issue is now, he's so good at blend, like, messing with your reality and senses that can you get to him? And that happens so much in the movie. And that, Overlapped so well with uh, the issue of Peter learning to trust his instincts in himself because he has the Peter tingle, as they yeah, say. Yeah, learning <laughs> to trust the Peter tingle. Yeah, and it, the first time he fights Mysterio, which is an amazing scene, by the way. That, oh my god, I had shivers the entire time watching that scene. It was so awesome. Yeah, it's one of the coolest ways to do Mysterio, and it, like, it harkens so much to uh, the Batman Asylum, Arkham Asylum games, where you had to fight Scarecrow. And where there were these like, weird, trippy nightmares. Yeah. And they did it so well. And it came down to, it's just visual. There's nothing really else to it. And Peter just need to learn to trust his instincts and spider sense and all it was, that. It was kind of like a blind swordsman moment. Yeah. yeah. And you kind of see the two edges of that. You see the first one where he is just kind of lost in... And among, in amongst all the Mysterio trickery. And then you see the second fight where he knows about Mysterio's tricks. And he can literally fight with his eyes closed. He doesn't need to see, so the illusions don't matter. And he's just tearing these drones to shreds. Because yeah, also in the first encounter, he was unsure of himself. So everything that Mysterio was saying to him was hitting him really hard. But in the final encounter, he was more sure of himself. He knew what he had to do at that moment. So he was able to focus more on his Peter Tingle. <laughs> I do have a slight issue with the first scene. I really enjoyed it. There's one thing about it that just like stretches my uh, ability to suspend disbelief for a moment. And that is, before that scene, we get to see a scene of Quentin Beck scripting the like first, or one of the encounters, where he's like, testing out the illusion, like, scripting it perfectly to make sure everything works the same, what, uh, exactly right. Oh, pump up the drone's damage 100% so we can really get this to be exactly what we want it to be. Uh, he finds out that Peter has one of the cameras, like, half a day before he has that fight scene with Peter. Did he really manage to perfectly script this entire fight scene in that half a day to the point where he knew exactly where Spider-Man would be at all times so that he could try and punch Mysterio and instead punch a pillar that's in front of him and stuff like that. 
It was iffy. Right. I really liked the scene. It's just one of those things of, like, you have to suspend your disbelief for a moment and just, like, except, all right, maybe he doesn't need to script everything perfectly. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Maybe he's just smart enough to come up with these plans on the fly when he's calm. And to be fair as well with this, uh, all the fights that happened happened exactly where Mysterio wanted them to happen. It wasn't like a fight broke out randomly and he had to invoke these powers. It always happened exa- exactly where he wanted. When yeah. Peter fought him the first time, he took him to this abandoned building. When yeah. he fought him the second time, it was on the bridge where he was set up. Because like you see that he was meticulously planning everything. So as soon as things started to not go the way he wanted to, at the end when Peter started getting close to him on the bridge, he started panicking and ordered all of the drones that he was commanding, most of them anyway, to form a defensive perimeter around him and not let anything near him. And then he started freaking out when Spider-Man started getting really near him. (laughs) And also on uh, Peter's growth as well, uh, as you mentioned before, a lot of it was coming down to he's not Iron Man, and he didn't want to be Iron Man, uh, but he felt like he had to be to, you know, make everyone feel safe and respect him and all those things. He was trying to live up to something he couldn't. And I felt one of the good things about this was he ends up coming to the moment where he realizes he doesn't have to be Iron Man. Uh, and this is the part near the end when he gets happy to come and rescue and he has to rebuild the suit. And then the, the flip on that, which was so good, oh. was when he starts building his new suit and he does pretty much spot on what Tony does. And Happy has that like proud moments like that yeah, where it's he doesn't want to be Iron Man, but he's got aspects of Iron Man in him. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's not becoming Iron Man. He's becoming Spider-Man. Fully and truly, it's just this version of Spider-Man has so many similarities with Iron Man that that was by far my favorite scene, though. Like, when he pulls up the display for, like, setting up his uh, suit, and then, like, he does the, like, wrist grab thing to pull up the controller for the animation stuff, and he does not exactly the same motion that Tony Stark has used in previous films with his holographic display stuff. I got <laughs> fucking chills in the oh, theater. Yeah. And it goes back to that whole thing of... We constantly keep getting from Tony when he was alive in the series was he, Spider-Man is going to be him, but better. That's the whole goal. Yeah. And yep. it's really exemplifying that. Yeah, exactly. The From the first movie, Homecoming, where we have Spider-Man just saying, I was just trying to be like you. And Tony responding, I wanted you to be better. And it's just like, he doesn't want... He makes it very clear from the beginning. He doesn't want Spider-Man to become Tony Stark. He wants Spider-Man to be better than Tony Stark. Or better than Iron Man. To become his own thing. Yeah, because at that point, Tony is aware I've made plenty of mistakes, and I don't want you making the same mistakes that I did. Evidence of Tony's mistakes, and this is one thing I really liked from this movie, is they continued the trend of, so far in the MCU, Spider-Man's rogues gallery of villains are all just people who have been slighted by Tony, and... Peter's the one who has to clean up after Tony to fix the mess. Yeah, the only exceptions really we would say to this now that they haven't been a villain yet, but Scorpion does Scorpion, exist in this world. Yeah, Scorpion uh, was introduced in the post-credit scene for Homecoming. Yeah, yeah he specifically gone. wants to be uh, to deal with Spider-Man because of his own reasons. We have the Prowler in the world too, which could go either way at this point. Uh, I can see him being a villain who possibly gets recruited in, but I could also see him being uh, much like uh, in the previous Spider-Man movie, uh, Tobey Maguire ones. The Sandman, where yeah. something thrust him to being a villain, but he switches sides. I don't know how well this would... I don't think this is going to happen in the MCU, but there have been... Not the... Uh, I can't remember his name. The name of the character who is the Prowler. Um, there's been multiple instances of the Prowler, and the one who's Miles Morales' uncle, this isn't true, but for other instances of the Prowler, 
Uh, Spider-Man's actually got them to pretend to be Spider-Man before, so that he could be Peter Parker around Spider-Man to, like, dissuade any beliefs that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So I could easily see that being a thing going forward in the MCU, because we do have the slight problem right now of everybody knows who Spider-Man is now, and anytime that happens in the comic books, uh, two things tend to happen. Either MJ or Aunt May dies. One of them. Yeah, and going on that, we could switch into the what's coming next uh, idea of uh, the topics we want to go over. Yeah, it ends with, well, first off, the best thing about this is... J.K. Simmons is J. J. Jonah Jameson. Jameson. Which means there is definitely someone who, after that, was like, we already perfectly cast uh, J. Jonah Jameson. Bring him back. Yeah. If we get literally anyone else to play J. Jonah Jameson, the internet will riot over the fact that it's not J.K. Simmons, because he's the perfect cast for J. Jonah Jameson. Just him screaming at a bunch of reporters, bring me pictures of Spider-Man! It's phenomenal. And then what what the, he heralds in is uh, Quentin Beck ends up dying at the end of the movie, uh, and this is his final video that he released, uh, indicating like, oh, I ended up defeating the spiritual monster, the uh, time monster, I sent it back to his dimension, but then Spider-Man attacked me for some reason? I don't know what's going on, but yeah. his name is Peter Parker. Yeah, Spider-Man attacked me with drones and all that stuff. Here's a clip of him, like, telling the drones to kill a bunch of people. His name's <laughs> Peter Parker, by the way. <laughs> and here's, like, the, the fake out, like, you can see, like, put so much dramatic energy into this, like, his name is, P- and it cuts out, and it's like, oh, okay, thank God. Cut back in. Peter Parker's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, he's like, cut his head, he's like, what the fuck? Yeah, I had the exact same reaction at that same moment as Peter in the movie. And this came out a lot, like, I didn't, I assumed at some point they would have the Peter Parker is Spider-Man reveal. I happened this early. way sooner, way sooner than I expected. That being said, it does fit really well with uh, Spider-Man taking the mantle of Tony Stark, because that was Tony Stark's big deal, was he was a superhero who was willing to be open about who he was as a person, and uh, he, like threatened multiple supervillains to come to his house, telling them his address over the TV. <laughs> so he was very open with that fact. And I think for Spider-Man to fully adopt the role of uh, Iron Man, he kind of has to have that aspect of being open about who he is, which they did in Civil War. And as I've already stated, huge problems with Spider-Man being Peter Parker in, like, the villains... For whatever reason, Tony Stark's villains will, like, sometimes go after him, sometimes go after Pepper Potts or people around him, but oftentimes they go straight after Tony Stark. Peter Parker's villains go after Aunt May and MJ almost exclusively. <laughs> They're like, I don't want to fight Spider-Man. That doesn't sound fun. I want to kill everyone Spider-Man loves. That guy will beat the shit out of me. And that's the interesting thing, too, is we don't know at this point what the movie lineup's going to be moving forward. So how is this going to get re- resolved? And where the universe is connected... If Spider-Man movie's coming out in, like, three years' time, th- this is going to be something... Are they going to resolve this before we get to that movie? Is it going to be resolved in another movie? It opens up a lot of interesting ideas, what's going on. And is he going to be able to play it off like, oh, it's not me? Uh, as you mentioned before, having someone else be Spider-Man. Would he have someone else be Spider-Man while he's... Be Parker's like, oh, no, it's not me, there's Spider-Man over there! Or Night that, Monkey. That actually... <laughs> oh, I'm not actually Spider-Man, Peter Parker's actually Night Monkey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that note... Kind of bringing back the Prowler topic, they wouldn't have to have the Prowler be take the place of Spider-Man to, like, throw off the scent of it being Peter Parker. They could do something really cool and have, like, for whatever reason, Spider-Man goes to the Prowler and is like, hey, I need you to pretend to be Spider-Man so I can be Peter Parker around Spider-Man and people don't know who's me. And then the Prowler 
It's like, I don't want to do that. We're not the same build. People will immediately notice that Spider-Man got a whole lot bigger. What if my nephew pretends to be Spider-Man, and then we have Miles Morales pretending to be Spider-Man? Yeah, and, and that's something cool they could do. They could introduce Miles Morales as a new character, uh, even have spider powers already. So maybe that's something where, you know, he doesn't plan to have someone emulate him, but then a new Spider-Man shows up, and he's like, oh, what's going on here? And that could be part of the movie. Or they could be building up to, maybe Spider-Man 3 will be a Sinister Six movie. We already have... Uh, Mysterio and the Scorpion and the Shocker. Vulture. Shocker is also there working Shocker. for the Vulture. And all they have to do is introduce one other character, possibly, who brings them all together. It's like, oh, I know you all hate Spider-Man. We know who he is. And gets the team together to go beat him up. Uh, the kind of obvious choice is Dr. Ock, because like half of the instances of the Sinister Six were led by Dr. Octopus. But on that note, that kind of brings me to a question I wanted to ask you guys about the future of the MCU. Which is, so far within the Marvel rendition of the Spider-Man movies, they've done a really good job of bringing up, like, relatively unknown uh, characters from Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Like, yes, if you've read the comic books, Mysterio and the Vulture are both fairly well-known characters. But if you haven't read the comic books, you're just sitting there like, what the fuck are these guys? These are nothing like the villains I've seen before. So I kind of want to know, who do you guys think would be a really cool character from Spider-Man's rogues gallery? For them to bring in for a third Spider-Man movie. I'll give you guys a chance to think of it while I bring up my fir- uh, first choice. Which is Craven the Hunter. Because Craven the Hunter is a phenomenal villain. His whole deal is he wants to be the apex hunter. He believes that guns and bows and arrows are cheating at hunting. So he literally hunts down the greatest beasts in the world and kills them with his bare hands. He ends up finding out that Spider- uh, Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Which fits really well with the ending of Far From Home. And then decides he's going to hunt and kill Spider-Man to prove he's the greatest hunter of all time. So that's probably my top choice for the next villain for them to bring in. Well, they also talk about, too, like, uh, the people behind the, that worked on making this movie are of uh, the other S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that was there. Who is... Dimitri? Possi- yeah, Dimitri, who is possibly, possibly the chameleon. And they're being very coy about, is this the chameleon or not? And the chameleon is also related to Craven the Hunter. Yeah, he's Craven's brother, which is... So they could even, if they're going that route, they'd have Craven and the chameleon both be villains in the next one. Yeah, I would really like that. Uh, in the same vein as Craven, there's no way it'll ever happen in, like... They'll have to make, like, five more Spider-Man movies before this is a viable villain for them to pull in. But if they pull in Gog, which is Craven's pet alien that he raised in the Savage Lands, <laughs> that is just this giant reptilian alien monster, oh, that'd be so cool. I'd be so on board. It's essentially Spider-Man versus, like, a slightly smaller uh, Godzilla, and it's amazing. Uh, now, uh, for what I was thinking, a cool idea could be, and they probably won't do this because the popular, uh, the character's so popular in the series right now, but Ned Leeds in the comics becomes... Uh, Hobgoblin, doesn't he? Yeah, at one point he does become the Hobgoblin, and that would also be fantastic if, like, Ned takes on the role of Harry Osborn and gets slighted by Peter. Like, he has another one of those situations where he's trying to use Peter as Spider-Man to, like, increase his own popularity or something like that. He gets slighted one too many times by, like, Peter, in this case, not choosing Spider-Man over Ned, but choosing, like, MJ over Ned, and Ned just takes it the wrong way and, like, Twists. Yeah, and they could be building into that, too, where even in this movie, we got the part of where Ned was feeling a bit uncomfortable. It's like, oh, MJ is your new partner now? You didn't come and ask me for help? But a cool way they could do this, too, is 
We still don't know who bought the old Stark Tower. Now, of course, in the movie, at the end, there's a hint that it might be the Fantastic Four, because yeah, you won't believe what's coming next. It's one with a circle, two with a circle, circle three with a circle, and then a question mark. Yeah, and it's like, okay, Fantastic Four symbols the four with a circle. It could be just indicating phase four. four. We're really excited to show you what's coming. But if it is Norman Osborn the bought and it's Oscorp that becomes that building, we could even have that Norman Osborn's the person who brings together the Sinister Six and even possibly turns Ned into the Hobgoblin. Yeah. To be a prototype of something he's working on, a super a syndrome uh, that he wants to use himself. So you could hint at the Green Goblin coming. You could turn Ned into the Hobgoblin and not even know it because a lot of times the Hobgoblin forgets they're the Hobgoblin when they're yeah. not Hobgoblin. And yeah, it's a weird mind chemical situation. You can also establish Norman Osborn in this universe is possibly a big bad for just the MCU moving forward because he's definitely an Avengers-level villain when he gets the right situation going. Yeah, especially like... Him almost in, like, the Thanos style where, like, he doesn't directly interact with them. He just pulls strings that causes problems for them. And, like, the Avengers interact with him as Norman Osborn and maybe don't even realize that he is the supervillain behind all their problems. Because he's just very subtly manipulating a web, pulling strings, and And web was not an intentional Spider-Man-based product. And that would work so well with him getting the Sinister Six together, well, uh, forming it essentially, using the existing villains, and also pulling in Ned as, like, his control of the situation through mind control or something like that. And something I also want to kind of jump over real quickly to. Uh, actually, no, we'll let Matt answer his question, then I'll go back to that. So, Matt, do you have a character from Spider-Man's Rogues Gallery you'd like to bring in? I don't really, because all I have regarding Spider-Man knowledge is the movies. So the only villains I really know are like Venom, Dr. Octopus, Sandman. Well, in that case, are there any ones from like the Sam, Ra- Sam Raimi or the... Andrew Garfield ones that you would really like to see done by Marvel? Because some of the Sam Raimi ones and some of the Andrew Garfield ones were done really poorly, and maybe if they gave them back to Marvel, Marvel could handle those villains a lot better. So, are there any of those you'd like to see? I would like to see Sandman. Because originally in Far From Home Spider-Man, when we saw that big sand elemental pop up, I thought maybe Sandman. Because I had no idea about Mysterio, what he did, or what he did, what was going on with these elementals. So I thought maybe that was their Sandman coming in. One thing I will say about Sandman is he has some phenomenal storylines in throughout the Spider-Man comics. Like one is just horrifying to think of, which is Peter Parker is fighting against Sandman and it's like an extended saga of him fighting against Sandman and him realizing that the only way he can defeat Sandman is he manages to come to the conclusion that all of his consciousness is in a single grain of sand, and if he can separate that grain of sand from the rest of Sandman's body, uh, then Sandman can't manipulate the rest of the sand, and he's just trapped in the single grain of sand. And so Spider-Man ends up doing some crazy science BS, finds the single grain of sand that's manipulating him, and then traps him in web, and like... Because Sandman's tra- consciousness is trapped inside of single grain of sand, it feels like a thousand years to Sandman while he's trapped there, just in web for like two hours, and it's just like the most aggressive psychological torture <laughs> Spider-Man's ever put anyone through unintentionally. Oh my god! And that, that's an interesting thing too, going into this movie that they actually show Spider-Man and Peter Parker as being intelligence, which doesn't happen very often in the movies. Yeah, that's okay. That brings me to kind of one of the Easter eggs I wanted to talk about. Uh, but from the scene where Quentin Beck brings up the multiverse and says, uh, I came from another universe to your universe, uh, and we need to, like, work together to stop your universe from being destroyed the same way mine was, which 
half of that sentence was clearly a lie because he's not from another part of the multiverse. He was wrong, uh, but he wasn't wrong. Yeah, I w- really want it to be later proven that he was right about the multiverse being created because we know that the multiverse was kind of created from the endgame shenanigans with time. I would really like it for them to actually start playing into the multiverse, though, with future movies. But there are some Easter eggs in that scene that are really cool if you're paying attention and you're up on your comics books knowledge. Uh, before I talk about them, though, yes, you're right. There's that scene where he's talking about it, and Peter immediately drops in. He's like, wait, but that would mean our assumptions about the initial singularity are incorrect. And it's just like, man, I'm I'm sorry. That was weird. And Quentin Beck's like, yeah, everyone's there like, wow, you're such a nerd. And Quentin Beck's just like, don't apologize for being the smartest person in the room. It's like, yes, I love smart Peter Parker. It's amazing. <laughs> but the Easter eggs is, uh, Quentin Beck says he came from his dimension, which was Earth 833, to this dimension, Earth 616, which are two significant numbers if you think about it. So Earth 616 is kind of the main Earth that all the storylines in the Marvel comics takes place in. Like, they do jump around to some other Earths, but that's the main one that most of the stories we know take place in. Once again, that's proof that Quentin Beck is lying right from the beginning, if you're familiar with the comics, because the Marvel MCU actually takes place on Earth 10,999 or something like that. Yeah, something like that. The Earth he says he comes from is, like, a neat little bit of foreshadowing, though, because he says he's from Earth 833, and if you've read the comic books, Earth 833 is synonymous with, like, one thing and one thing only, and... That's that it's the home of Spider UK, which is a Spider-Man based out of UK, yep. which is where this movie ends up going. Yeah, the final battle is all in the UK. <laughs> uh, and it's really cool if you read up on Spider-Man or Spider UK because there's a couple fun things that happen. So first of all, uh, Spider UK ends up leaving his dimension, Earth 833, to come to another one to fight against a big battle along with all of the other Spider-Mans from all the other universes. And when he goes to go home to his universe... He finds out that his entire dimension has been destroyed, which is fitting with, like, what Quentin is saying happened to his dimension. Yeah. And also, this was probably not intentional by the makers of Far From Home, but if it was, it's a phenomenal detail, which is Spider-Man UK has all of the powers of Spider-Man except for Spidey Sense. And a huge (laughs) portion of this movie is Peter finagling with his Peter Tingle and it not really working at one point. And he has to, like, reawaken his Peter Tingle. And also known as Spider-Sense. Another neat thing about this, too, is it's not related to uh, Spider-UK, but I believe in the first Mysterio uh, villain arc that happened in the Spider-Man comics, his final fight with him is on the Brooklyn Bridge, and then this one ends with him defeating him on the Tower Bridge. Yeah. So, like, it's a lot, like a lot of the stuff, like, they very much mirrored it in a way that worked within this one, because it's pretty much the exact same plot of Mysterio, I want to be... A super uh, hero, and I'm going to beat Spider-Man because he's actually the bad guy. Even that happens where even in his quote-unquote death, he makes oh, yeah. Spider-Man the bad guy. Yeah, because in the very first comic arc, it's him posing or using his illusion uh, things that he worked uh, Gert learned from special effects on movies to create a situation where it looked like Spider-Man was trying to rob a bank or something like that. And he would present himself as the hero stopping Spider-Man. Yeah. And Spider-Man stops him. He's like, nope, I wasn't the one robbing the bank. You were. Fuck you. <laughs> Double middle fingers walking backwards on the screen. Except that definitely didn't happen in the comic books, but whatever. <laughs> and, like, it very perfectly mirrors that. Where, like, in this movie, Quentin Beck tries to frame Spider-Man for killing the war... Or destroying London. Only to have it... Well, it hasn't been revealed yet, but hopefully it'll be revealed in the future that Spider-Man was actually the hero... And Quentin Beck was just stopping him. Uh, and that's actually something I want to kind of touch on, too, as well, is Quentin Beck. Is he dead? See, I don't think so. I, I, think... I also feel like not, because there's one thing that came to mind 
and that final scene, it, mind you, it was a very cool scene where he gets shot by the drone, falls down, he's dying, and then you hear the bullet go off, and Peter just scratches it and grabs the gun because he was actually behind him. And the thing I could think of this whole time is because he pretty much falls down and starts dying. But the one that got shot by the drone was the illusion one. It was part of his plan to throw him off so he could shoot him. And then this one just dies. Like, what did he get hit by, right? Like, I was and, trying to figure that out. He just dies. And, like, it's it could be very easy for this to be faked because after he sees Quentin Beck, like, bleeding on the ground, he asks Edith, is this real? And Edith responds, all illusions are down. That might not be an illusion from a drone. Like, it could be special, it could, it be, could actual, be practical, actual effects. practical effects. Like, he could have blanks and, like, blood packs, and he just has fake blood coming out of him right now. And, like, very easily, Edith just wasn't looking for that because it's all, like, analog and she just doesn't notice it. Yeah. Or she's just answering the question, this is technically real, none of this is, like, an illusion. It's just none of it's, he's not actually bleeding out. And because of the way that Peter phrased it, he doesn't get to know the real answer he's looking for. Because yeah. yeah. up until this point, Beck planned out everything meticulously. So he planned out getting Edith from Peter. So well, who's to say that he didn't plan out this ending where Peter takes Edith back and recalibrates it back to him? So why not program in, while he had access to Edith, a backdoor for him also? Yeah, and that's the thing too. This iteration of Mysterio is very smart about planning things. And even when Spider-Man initially shows up and he tells him to drop the illusion, he's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to tell the people? It's like, I have a plan for that. He he was making a plan on the fly. And I think even Quentin Beck knows that in a one-on-one fight, he doesn't beat Spider-Man. Yeah, I know. So I feel he made a plan to, essentially, if he's defeated, to get out. Because he doesn't seem like the guy that, I died, but I got the last laugh because I outed you. I don't think he cares about getting the last laugh from the grave. I think this is a plan moving forward to ruin Spider-Man and to ensure his survival. Yeah, and I think there's a couple signs of that, because you're right. Like, he says, drop the illusions. By that moment, he's already decided he's going to frame Spider-Man for what's happening. Yeah. And he's got to know, like, let's say there's a 50-50 chance he wins the fight and 50-50 chance he loses, even though he definitely knows there's less than worse odds for him in that case. But regardless, he's either planning on losing the fight and being able to frame Peter Parker for... Or, yeah, actually frame Peter Parker, not Spider-Man... For the crimes that have happened, or he's planning on winning the fight and then using this as a further proof of why Mysterio is the greatest hero of all time. But I think it's very easy to see that, like, the only way that he has the proper footage to show that it's Spider-Man causing all the problems is to let Spider-Man get back the Edith glasses. So I think he was counting on losing that fight as soon as he brought down the drones, but I don't think he was counting on dying and getting the last laugh, as he said. That's not who Mysterio is. He was definitely just planning on beating Spider-Man later and the kind of chess analogy of I'm losing this fight so that I can win the battle later on. Yeah, and uh, after that whole quote-unquote Mysterio death scene, it cut back to uh, his associate who was at their command center in their secret lair who was operating the drones, and he wasn't panicked or anything. He just calmly removed a USB stick from uh, the computer he was on. Yeah, like and that was the one they had shown earlier for them. I mean, like, he actually said that they were going to, like, put their own back doors into Edith or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was something to the effect of, we're hacking into Edith now that we have control. Not just we're going to use Edith to control it the way it's intended, but we're going to add our own functionality, so that's probably him 
taken away so they still have control over Edith. Of course. And I don't think it was a, a plan of either that he was saying, oh, I'm going to lose, so I'm going to plan for loss. I feel like he was trying to beat Spider-Man, yeah. but this was his ultimate fallback if it didn't work out that way. Yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. And uh, with that, I do feel they were very intentionally vague about what exactly happened because he goes down, he dies. Peter asks, not, is he dead, but is this real? Yeah. And uh, Edith gives back a very vague answer of like, oh, there's no illusions. And yeah. also that whole... Uh termination of the drone's current attack sequence using the keyword execute. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's something that Tony Stark would program in. Yeah, that seemed very much like that might have been a change they made to it. So Edith could very well still be under the control of going to bed. Because actually, thinking about it, don't they mention earlier that... that Peter Parker had to actually give verbal confirmation to give it to Quentin Beck, but he just took the glasses back and put them on, and it was immediately transferred yeah, to him. With and no it was Quentin immediately like, facial recognition accepted. So yeah. does that mean that... It depends. Do the glasses work that anyone who's registered has access to it, or does it only have one controller at any point? And I feel like the hints are there that Quentin Beck is still alive. Doesn't mean he's guaranteed alive. Probably not. I feel like they were vague with these things specifically in case they wanted to bring him back. Yeah. But I don't think that means they necessarily have to bring him back. But that could be still a pretty damn cool reveal. Because, I, I, honestly, the more we talk about it, the more I'm really excited for a possible Sinister Six movie being the next Spider-Man. Yeah. And just having the reveal of, like, oh, Mysterio's still there. Yeah. Having, like, the Sinister Six attacking a city and having, like, weird stuff happening that doesn't quite make sense. And then you get towards the, like second act of the Sinister Six movie only to realize that Mysterio is still alive providing allusions to the Sinister Six's dealings. And, and still has the drones. Yeah. That would be an amazing reveal. Because honestly I feel this Mysterio isn't good unless he has the drones. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about those. So there's the mid credit scene and the post credit scene that I want to talk about a little bit. So first of all, there's the mid credit scene where Spider-Man puts down MJ after swinging her through the uh, streets. And one thing I've really liked about that is, like, while he's swinging through the streets with her, like, it feels very much so, like, them one-upping the Sam Raimi films. Because, like, there's the meme of, like, the Sam Raimi films, her hair's blowing the wrong way, and it's clearly a mannequin that she's holding on to <laughs> yeah. while it's going. And, like, this one, like, I was very closely looking. I'm like, they're, they're recreating this scene. They're definitely one-upping them right now, because, like, her hair's blowing the way that it makes sense for her hair to blow. You can very clearly see if it is a mannequin, it's a moving mannequin, so it's probably not a mannequin. <laughs> it's just like, just ever so slightly one-upping the Sam Raimi films on that one scene. I, actually, another thing I was actually expecting during this scene was, Mary Jane, pretty much her catchphrase at this point is, go get him, tiger. And uh, back to your point earlier, where they do a lot of very cringy things, go get him, tiger is not a phrase you'd expect very often, but them together, I can see her being cringy and not sure what to do, and saying something stupid like that, and I was expecting she'd put him down, and then like there's a fight going to break out, that's what I thought the news broadcast was. Yeah. And I thought he was going to go to run off to, you know, save the day, and she'd be like kind of cringy, not sure, like, go get him, tiger, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I was expecting the movie to cut out in typical Spider-Man movie fashion, where suddenly... Their date cut short because a villain shows up and he has to go off and exactly save the day. like how the Andrew Garfield one ended with you know him about to hit Rhino, but then after it cuts out, the Rhino clearly murders Andrew Garfield, and that's why we never got the <laughs> yeah. yeah, doesn't murder Spider Man, murders Andrew Garfield. Uh, but before you get fully into your point, there, Peter, I want to take a moment to step in here and say before it cuts to the credits, and before we even get to that uh, mid credit scene, the very last part of the movie before the credits really looks like. Spider-Man accidentally drops his girlfriend and kills her. <laughs> I definitely missed that part, but I'm gonna go back and watch it again to see Oh, that. you mean when they're jumping over the building? Yeah, over the building, and she screams as, like, he extends his arm with her. Yeah. Oh, God. 
Oh, I missed that. Oh, boy. So, anyways, we get to the mid-credit scene, and there's the big reveal of J. Jonah Jameson telling everyone that Spider-Man is the one who committed the attack on London. I got pictures of Spider-Man, and it doesn't look good. And then we get the further reveal of Spider-Man is being announced to be Peter Parker. And you have that moment of, I've been watching this film. I know what really happened. All the people in the film haven't been watching the film. They don't know what happened. They're definitely going to fall for this ploy of Mysterios, and they're going to think that Spider-Man caused all this to happen. Which is amazing by the makers of the film for, like, most people in the audience to have that thought process of, I know what really happened, that's not what happened. But, like, the way they present it to the audience reveals that the characters in the movie don't know what happened. For them to then go to the post credit scene, which is, fuck, I don't even know what happened anymore. Because they reveal that two of the main characters were not the characters we thought they were, but were rather scrawls impersonating the two main characters. Yep. And posing as them in order to kind of not infiltrate, but to cover for Nick Fury, essentially, while he goes on an extended vacation. Uh, which, at the same time, uh, kind of getting into my point of the implications of going backwards, going through this movie, it's very clear, on a, like, if you go through on a second watch, that they are not Nick Fury and Maria Hill. For one, Maria Hill ref- repeatedly refers to him as Nick. Yep. And, like, he's... One of the things he says during Captain Marvel is... People refer to me as Fury. Anytime anyone refers to me as Nick, I know they don't really know me. Which is how it gets revealed that one of the characters who infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. is a Skrull. Yeah, that's how I found out that Ben Mendelsohn was actually Talos the whole time. Because he says, oh, good work, Nicholas. And then he looks at him and is like, what did you just call me? What the fuck did you just call me? <laughs> He's like, who calls you Fury? Everyone calls you Fury. Your mother? Where they call Fury? Who do you call your mother? Fury. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get that those kind of subtle hints that it was not Nick Fury the entire movie. Which brings up the question of... When did Nick Fury get replaced with a scroll? Yeah, that was what I want to talk about because now we know that between the 90s to now, the scrolls are obviously working with Nick Fury. They're friendly with him. And we got this that he was filling in for Nick Fury. When did he initially uh, swap out? Was the scene at the end of Infinity War real Nick Fury or was this Talos uh, currently covering for him? Does that mean the one at the funeral was Talos or Nick Fury? Going I- back through the series, which ones were Nick Fury, which one were Talos? Because... We know he uses uh, the life model decoys in the comics. Pretty much, you're never always positive if you're talking to the real Nick Fury, or a double, or a copy, or a hologram. And this just opens up that mythos for Nick Fury now that, do we ever know if we're actually talking to the real one? So, on that note, there's a couple things I want to bring up. First of all, uh, the scroll in this movie, as Nick Fury says, I wanted to talk to you at the funeral. And as we've already seen... Scrolls don't, they have access to kind of short-term memories. They don't have access to long-term memories when they take a hold of, or take the form of a person. Yeah. Which means to me, I think it was a scroll at the end of uh, Endgame at the funeral. In fact, there's a great thing that was pointed out. I think it was initially pointed out by BuzzFeed, but it was probably somewhere before BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed's the one that pointed out and made it really popular amongst people, which is that during Age of Ultron... Oh, I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. It's like the most nothing scene, but we see uh, Nick Fury cutting a sandwich in half and then eating it, except he cuts the sandwich diagonally, and during Captain Marvel, he explicitly says, I cannot eat bread if it's cut diagonally. Not, I only choose to cut my bread uh, horizontally, but I cannot eat bread diagonally. And he's saying this as a piece of information for uh, Captain Marvel. 
specifically so that, like, if he ever is impersonated by a scroll, this is one of the ways you can know for sure that it's not me, is if they ever do this, it's not me. And so... Which opens up so many, like, first off, I feel so sorry for the writers of this that now have to answer that question at any convention. <laughs> so is this Nick Fury or Talos for every scene that ever has it happens? Uh, but yeah, there's the implication now that some scrolls stayed behind when she, uh, when uh, at the end of Captain Marvel, she takes off. And that they've been working with Fury, just popping in and out. And I do feel like, for example, the first time we see Nick Fury in Iron Man... And the, up to the first Avengers, I feel like, yeah, that's probably solidly yeah, Nick I, Fury. I'm willing to bet that's Nick Fury because I think at that point, the Avengers initiative isn't fully set up. And so Nick Fury would not feel comfortable leaving Earth without putting someone in charge of defending it. I think the earliest he could possibly leave is after the first Avengers movie, when the Avengers come together as a team and he sees this is a group of individuals who are capable of defending the world if I'm not here. That's the earliest I think he would be ever even consider leaving Earth. Yeah, and on top of that, too, uh, there's a multiple times where there's fake-outs with Nick Fury. Like, for example, when he dies in uh, Civil War. Oh, not Civil War. Uh, Winter, Winter Soldier. Soldier. Maybe the fake-out there is, you know, that was a pr- pretty good shot. And Bucky, the Winter Soldier, is not known for missing his targets very often. Maybe that was a scroll impersonating him, went down. And fake, like, they have a different physiology. They probably could have survived that easily and then pretended to die so that real Nick Fury could do whatever he was doing. Yeah. Uh, another fun implication that I feel is a fun experiment to go through is, is Maria Hill even real? I do not think so. <laughs> I don't think Maria Hill is real. Because, obviously, in the comics, there's a big backstory. Maria Hill is a real person and all that stuff. But we never seen past Maria Hill. All we know is, at some point between our earliest seeing of Nick Fury, which is in Captain Marvel to the uh, first appearance of Maria Hill, which would be, I believe, the first Avengers? Yes. That we see nothing to indicate that she was a person in that time frame. So is it just, like, maybe Maria Hill is an indication, like, oh, there's always been scrolls there since the first Avengers movie, but they've been masquerading as a human Maria Hill the whole time. Yeah, I find it very easy to believe that Talos' wife just stayed behind on Earth to look after Nick Fury, and, like, probably, like for a lot of the film, has just been taking the form of different people who are close to Nick Fury. And, like, before it was Maria Hill, it was probably someone else. And then that someone else, it stopped making sense that they were still around Nick Fury. So they just took the form of a young girl and aged her up to Maria Hill and had that person around Nick Fury all the time. Yeah, because it seems in this iteration of Nick Fury, he has a really strong connection with the scrolls. Like, he's pretty much best friends with Talos at this point. And uh, Captain Marvel, obviously. Uh, so it's definitely an interesting thing to look back at. Uh, just where I don't feel like they're going this way, but it definitely is a possibility just with how things have been set up that Maria Hill has been a scroll the whole time and the human Maria Hill is not actually a thing or maybe is in this universe, but uh, for some reason is not around. As for your implications moving forward as well, Nick Fury being uh, on the spaceship, possibly suggesting sword? Yes. So... Matt, your confused look implies to me you don't know what S.W.O.R.D. is. Uh, that's correct. So S.W.O.R.D. is essentially a intergalactic version of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's the extraterrestrial version of S.H.I.E.L.D. where it's an organization geared towards protecting humanity and other sentient life forces. Do yeah, you have a, the uh, actual anagram yeah, there? Yeah, it's a sentient world observation and response department. So it's shield for space, and they would deal with threats such as Thanos moving forward. Yeah. So Thanos being such the big global threat that he was, it makes sense they want to have something like shield, but for more galactic threats. Okay. And also, uh, historically in the comics, 
Captain Marvel tends to be a prominent member or leader of the teams because essentially Sword has its own Avengers-like unit. Yeah. Right. So they could be even setting up that Captain Marvel will be in charge of the Sword unit, essentially, and then we'll have a character back on Earth running the Avengers. If not, just everyone's part of, like, the Sword group, and then they have... Just like the Justice League, a floating space station. Because <laughs> yeah. that end end credit scene left me with a few questions. One, why is Nick Fury on a beach, one of the most unsecure places ever? And two, <laughs> why is he on a goddamn spaceship? And why doesn't he know where his shoes are? That's my main question. Yeah. Nick Fury plans for everything. <laughs> Lost his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of brings me back to wanting to talk about future implications of where the MCU could be going. So there's been two main... Well, there's been one main big bad that people have been talking about going forward that they think it's leading towards, which is a lot of people think it's leading towards Galactus as the next big bad to take the place of Thanos. I don't know how likely it is, but I really like our idea of Norman Osborn kind of being a web spinner, uh, creating kind of lies and deception acting as kind of the main villain of Phase 4 going forward. And that's the thing, too. They don't have to necessarily make it like they did before, where we've been building up to Thanos for three, uh, essentially, phases. They can even just make it that Norman Osborn is the villain for the next one or two, and then Galactus could be planned down the line, but they don't have to build up to it like they did before. One thing I would really like, because now that we've been given enough talk about scrolls, I think it would be really cool if they did a secret war in the MCU. There's a couple issues with it, but I think we could easily get around those. So, first of all, Matt, um, do you know the secret war? The what? Okay. <laughs> um, secret war was essentially the idea of scrolls invaded Earth and were taking the place of prominent members of society as well as superheroes because there were super scrolls who could emulate the superpowers of uh, superheroes that were around them. Uh, well, I believe super scrolls, they could take powers but they couldn't transform. But then Infiltrator Scrolls could transform but not take powers. Yeah. Uh, so it was this whole idea of you had this giant war between humanity and Scrolls, where Scrolls were evil in this case, and you just never knew who was who. So someone could be fighting alongside you, and you have no idea whether they're actually your ally or if there's someone infiltrating your group, and you don't know what you can trust. And this kind of, this movie, Far From Home, did a really good job of building up the idea of I don't know what I can trust from around me. Um, there is the slight issue of the scrolls have kind of been made out to be good guys and refugees so far in the MCU, but that can also kind of be worked around in the fact that like not all scrolls are necessarily good guys. The same way not all humans are good guys. There's quite a few bad humans mixed in with the good humans. Yeah, for that too as well. Uh, I feel like doing a secret invasion could be a cool thing where instead of building up to a big villain. For the next couple of phases, they're building up to an event, which could be Secret Wars. And then throughout it, you could sprinkle in ideas that maybe there's bad factions of scrolls out there. Not having an out-open conflict, but suggesting it here and there through certain actions. And you can have it, oh, they fight Norman Osborn and beat him. Galactus shows up and they beat him. And then the big Avengers movie at the end of it, like this build-up phase is, boom. But there's a bunch of scrolls secretly taking out superheroes and replacing them. And up prominent figures to just do their massive invasion. And can you imagine, like how awesome it would be to like have this secret wars movie at the end and you have like it be revealed that like the main character of a movie from several movies ago was a scroll the whole time like we find out that like 
Spider-Man 3, it's not actually Peter Parker. It's a scroll pretending to be Peter Parker for all of Spider-Man 3. And that's why he's suave and cool all of a sudden. And normally I would say, like, of course they wouldn't do this because having a character that we've been following as a main character kind of just throws all the plot development out the window to do stuff like that. But I feel with Infinity War and Endgame, they've shown they're willing to double down on a big world-changing event and have it stick. For example, Gamora, all the stuff that happened since... All of the Guardians all, of the Galaxy movies all, is gone. All of her character development is just thrown out the window. So definitely building up to an event could be a, a refreshing change to building up to a, a big, big bad. bad. And at the same time, it gives us the chance to experience some other villains in the world that might not be strong enough or worthy enough to hold the franchise as like a big maybe leading up for a few phases, but just like a big bad at the end. And it also gives them a chance for, like, a lot of expectations of version, because they could have Norman Osborn leading the Sinister Six against the uh, heroes and the Avengers, only for, like, another Norman Osborn to come out, and there to be this discussion of, like, is Norman Osborn the one leading the Sinister Six, or is that a Skrull pretending to be Norman Osborn, who's amassed villains around him to defeat them? Or is a Skrull a good guy who's trying to pretend to be Norman Osborn to kind of dissuade Norman Osborn's control over the Sinister Six. And it's just like, a lot of people, based on if they've only seen the MCU movies, are going to come to the conclusion Skrulls are good guys. If one of them's a Skrull, it's probably the one who's doing the good things and trying to help out the good guys. Only for it to be revealed later. Nope, that was the real Norman Osborn. He was the one trying to help them because his reputation's been fucked over by a Skrull who's impersonating him to uh, man- uh, manipulate a bunch of the Sinister Six. And I think it'd be really cool to kind of have that whole moment of, like, they very subtly hint at it because they've had one movie that was based entirely around Skrulls and presented Skrulls as bad guys, only to reveal that they're good guys. They've now had a movie which had Skrulls in it pretending to be normal characters, and it was not revealed that they were Skrulls until the final post credit scene. Yep. I think it'd be very easy for them to sprinkle in more of these moments of anyone you see in a movie even if they're a known character, could very easily just be a scrawl pretending to be that character. And that's all they really have to do to build up properly to a secret invasion is just show, yeah, anyone could be a scroll to the point where you have to wonder who it really is. Like, what I really want for them to do is I want them to have a couple more movies. I want them to probably do two more movies where they just don't even mention the scrolls at all. I want them to do, like, another movie or two where they have, like, another just kind of side character being a scroll, And then I want them to do a movie where it's revealed at the end that the villain was a scroll pretending to be a villain. <laughs> like, they bring back a villain that they've already defeated, but they didn't kill, they imprisoned. And then they have a plot line about him, like, breaking out and coming back to wreak havoc. Only for... Like, they could even do it with Scorpion, because Scorpion's currently in jail. Have Scorpion be a villain in a Spider-Man movie, only for it to later be revealed at the in a post credit scene that the Scorpion wasn't actually him. It was a scroll pretending to be the Scorpion to go after Peter Parker. I mean, to be fair, they could also do it with a character that did die. For example, maybe you know, Loki was killed off. Maybe a scroll comes back as Loki, knowing that Thor and- knows that Loki managed to come back multiple times and use that to infiltrate Asgard. Yeah. Which is now on Earth. Yeah, so just have Loki come back and be a part of uh, the new Earth-bound Asgard and have him come back and, like, try and and, like, it's already built into the character because Loki is known as a shapeshifter who takes on different forms. So we see him taking on different forms. We're like, yeah, that's definitely Loki. <laughs> only for the end to, only at the end for it to be real. Nope, that was a scroll also using their shapeshifting abilities. <laughs> but it still might be Loki. <laughs> it still might be Loki who's <laughs> pretending to be a scroll. That'd be such a fuck you and I would love it. 
Like, he just fucking winks at the camera at the end. It's like, I might be Loki. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. That would also go really well with uh, what's coming next billboard with the one, two, three question mark. Because a big part of the Secret Invasion is the uh, Fantastic Four. They're major characters in the Secret Invasion. They're one of the first superhero groups of heroes to kind of largely get infiltrated by Skrulls. And you don't know which of the Fantastic Four are actually scrolls and which of them are actually the mem- original members of the Fantastic Four. And it it's a huge plotline in The Secret Invasion, is the Fantastic Four being inve- invaded by scrolls. It's like, wait, when did we become eight, and why is there two of each of us? <laughs> I don't remember us being the Fantastic Five. <laughs> I know one of us is lying, and I think it's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We get paper bag uh, Spider-Man. Yes! <laughs> In the comics, there's a time where Spider-Man, I, I can't remember the exact details, but he was like naked in the Baxter building and he needed to get get away. So they gave him a fantastic suit, but they didn't want people to think there was another member of the Fantastic Four. So he literally put a paper bag over his head while wearing a Fantastic Four <laughs> suit to get away. Uh, now, on the topic of moving forward as well, uh, obviously there's a lot of possibilities for what can happen. But if they are building up to a new big bad, what do you guys want it to be? I think I... It's not really a big bad. I really want them to build towards a secret war. If there is a single big bad, though... Well, let's see. If it's the scrolls, is there a singular bad for them that kind of leads? Because I'm thinking, like, if we had to go through another three phases of building up to a big bad, who do you think would be best for it? Who would work in this universe? Who do you want? Um... What if you say something while I quickly see if there's a leader of the scrolls? Uh, now, for me, something I would like, of course, Norman Osborn would be a cool idea, or Doctor Doom. But what I was thinking is, we've already kind of gone into the space, and dealing with Earth things is kind of already established. But I feel like there's a, still a space within the universe they haven't tapped into well, and that's magic in the other dimensions. So possibly bringing Dormammu back as a big bad, or Mephisto. Mephisto would be a great big bad for them to bring in. And Mephisto's involved in a Spider-Man plot that involves his identity getting revealed, too. Uh, his name's familiar. Who is he? Uh, essentially, it's the devil. Oh, it's pretty much the best way to explain it. Uh, so th- that definitely gets into the realm of magic. They can introduce magic more thoroughly in this universe because they definitely went into like the space travel and established that with Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor. So space is now a flushed-out area. It feels real and not strange in this universe. And I feel... The next logical step is to open up another part of the universe in that same way. And magic makes the most sense. They have Doctor Strange in the universe currently. Uh, some other characters using magic have popped up here and there. So the next step makes sense to me is to introduce magic more thoroughly. The other dimensions and stuff along those lines. Right. So by introducing Mephisto, you give a big bad for essentially magical side of things. You introduce more magical characters and establish what the magical reality is like. That would work. And what I was mentioning too before is, uh, previously in the uh, comics, when Spider-Man outs himself, what ends up happening is, uh, because of this, someone ends up killing Aunt May, and Mephisto says, I'll wipe everyone's memory that you're Spider-Man and bring back Aunt May, but you'll have to give up your happiness and all your memories with Mary Jane. So he has to trade his life with Mary Jane, essentially, to bring back Aunt May and uh, wipe everyone's memory that he's Spider-Man. Oh. And it's a deal he ends up taking. Yeah. Which is very weird for a character built around responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that could be something they play towards. Like maybe, you know, post credit scene on another spine is like, hey, I can make it all go away. Yeah. They, yeah, they have Peter Parker get revealed. They have 
Aunt May die, and then they have, yeah, I'll bring back Aunt May, I'll remove everyone's memory of you being Peter Parker, but Michelle Jones forgets about you, and you forget about Michelle Jones. You only think of each other as awkward teens who knew each other. Yeah. So it could be a cool way to introduce the possibility, but I definitely think Mephisto would be a good fit for opening that side of the universe out. Yeah. That would work, especially since Doctor Strange was more told from the perspective of a student of magic. Yeah. And Duan was definitely a big bet they could make the big one built up to, but I feel like he's been easily defeated so far that it kind of makes no sense. They point. actually could bring Dormammu back because... He wasn't easily defeated by Doctor Strange. He was easily defeated by the Time Stone, and that's been written out of their universe. Yeah, it no longer exists. As soon as Dormammu finds out that's gone. Yeah, so it could be something as easy as he sees the snap, he sees the like second snap that causes the blip, or causes the snap to turn into a blip. Um, and then he is now aware of the fact that the stones have been kind of written out of his timeline, and he now is safe to attack the world again. I think that'd be a really fascinating storyline of him coming back and be like, I only have to kill you once now. I killed you dozens of times last time. <laughs> you say I'm an expert in killing Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> I got lots of experience killing you, Doctor Strange. So is that who you want to say is the big bad to build towards? Or did you think of someone else? No, I, I actually kind of like uh, the idea of Talos becoming the big bad. And that, like, he gets slighted by the Earthlings. Like, when Nick Fury comes back after his vacation, something he'd do, along with Captain Marvel, slights the Skrulls in some way. And Talos actually ends up leading a splinter cell that of Skrulls who, like, pretend to be friendly towards the humans and the Avengers... Only to, like, secretly be causing the start of the Secret War. I think that'd be a really cool storyline. Mm -hmm. I would like them to continue the trend that they started to set with uh, the Ant-Man of bringing not-so-well-known characters into the limelight. Like, uh, we've already seen Dormammu, so why not bring someone that we haven't... Or someone who hasn't read the comics. Why not bring someone that they wouldn't know into the limelight? Like this... Uh, this devil guy. Mephisto? Mephisto, yeah. Yeah, it hasn't been in the universe. And another cool thing they could do with that, too, is Mephisto pretty much has powers over life and death as well. They could bring back characters that have died for, like, dramatic fights and stuff, too. Like, obviously, Robert Downey Jr. doesn't have, like, a, a set contract with him right now. I can see him showing up in movies later on. Maybe in, like, you know, a couple years down the road, he wants to come back for, like, you know, a cameo or something like that. And they can have, like, you know, resurrected evil Tony Stark be one of the people they have to fight. If that is the thing they end up doing. How good is the foreshadowing during the, what I'm now referring to as the Mysterio trip, where he's, like, seeing all these trippy uh, illusions, and then he sees Iron Man, or zombie Iron Man, claw out of his grave. That would be the most amazing foreshadowing of, like, an undead evil Tony Stark coming back to yeah. fight Peter Parker specifically. And then we have Spider-Man having to defeat the hero who helped make him into the man he is now. Yeah. And now, of course, even with like all this fine ideas, I think it's probably a good chance that Galactus might be the one. Yeah, I think Especially it's probably going to be Galactus. Because when uh, the big reveal comes of like, you know, the movie slate that they're working on, 
if Fantastic Four is in the next phase in any capacity, it has to be Galactus. It's got to be Galactus. Because to add the Fantastic Four, then we're dealing with magic. It's like, we're like, oh, fuck, we're all science. Yeah. I don't know how to do magic. It's just, it's Dormammu, and then it gets to Reed Richards proving that Dormammu can't exist, and he just blinks out of existence. (laughs) (laughs) You see, if I carry this too, and Dormammu's gone. (laughs) Oh, God. What would you guys say would be your favorite moments from the movie? I already kind of touched a bit on it a bit, but my favorite moment is absolutely the scene where Peter starts creating a new spider suit in the back of the Quinjet and like him doing the hand motion the exact same way that Tony Stark did it to put the like manipulation on the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Holographic? Holograms? That's the word I'm looking for. Especially with like happy recognizing that this is a very Iron Man thing that's happening and him putting on ACDC. I'm going to put some music on. I love Led Zeppelin. (laughs) Yeah, it's ACDC and Peter Parker's going, yeah, I love Led Zeppelin. Not even like ironically, like that's who he actually thinks he's playing right now. Um, For me, it was actually, it's not a specific scene, but more so the opening of the movie that starts with the really cheesy uh, uh, and my heart will go on memoriam for the characters where it's like the really shitty JPEG of Vision yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. the, the Getty's Images logo over one of it and uh, when they're just talking about this stuff and uh, I, I can't remember the name of uh, the other cast that's not Betty but just talking about like you know uh, not my old younger brother's my older brother's like yeah that's how time works shit's crazy you yeah. can't swear on this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going into like just summing up what's now called the blip the, the part that I actually lost at laughing was it's the marching band. Yeah, it's reappearing in the middle of the <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're flying and they disappear. It's like, and then a few years later, everyone reappeared exactly where they were. It's a basketball game going on when the band popped back and they smash into each other. I mean, <laughs> yeah, if I'm being honest, there's a slight problem with that just because it, if everyone reappeared exactly where they were, what about people who we saw helicopters crash into buildings because their pilot got snapped out of there? Does that mean that like, one moment you're piloting a plane, you don't feel so good, and then the next thing you know, you're plummeting to the ground outside of the helicopter. No, it definitely doesn't feel so good. Or buildings that were torn down in the time frame. Or, you know, does this mean exactly where you were on Earth? Or did it just so happen that the Earth happened to be in the exact spot it was when everyone got put away? But maybe some of them were slightly over, so some of them are now in space. Uh, Actually, there are people that were in space, definitely, when that happened, too. I, I want to talk a bit more about the blip in a second, but first, Matt, do you have... What's your favorite moment? My favorite moment was also that scene on the very beginning of the movie where the marching band blips back into existence and then that one player just gets smacked in the face (laughs) with the basketball. (laughs) Oh boy. Um, So on the topic of the blip, it brings me to my favorite character. Not my favorite moment. Not even related to my favorite moment. My favorite character is the teacher who actually cares about teaching uh, throughout the movie. All of his interactions, like, finding out that Peter apparently has a perfume allergy. And I'm going, oh, you have a, Peter's a perfume allergy? This is serious. We gotta get this under control real quick. And, like, you swap you with you, you swap you, you go up there, Ned, you're sitting next to Betty now. It's like, you know, you didn't have to move everyone for a perfume allergy. You literally just had to move Peter away from the perfume. I thought you were going to talk about the part where he meant he's talking to Peter. It's like, yeah, my wife, I thought she got snapped. Turns out she just ran away with some other guy. Yeah, that- I had a funeral for her. Well, it wasn't a real funeral, but we, we actually all, had it. We thought it was a real funeral. We thought she was dead. <laughs> do you want to see the video? We have the video. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, or later on, when he's like, do you need any, like, emotional counseling after the trauma we went through today? No, no, I'm good. 
Good, because I'm not qualified to give you any. Well, the other teacher is also like the running jokes, like, in my scientific opinion, witches. <laughs> and then when uh, Peter's actually reading through the stuff, there's the bit about, like, practiced witchcraft. Yeah. Oh, but that that scene of him reading everyone else's, like, text messages and stuff with Edithon brings up one of the saddest things in the movie. Flash? Flash has not seen his parents in the longest time. Like, you, if you read his text message, it's him sending a text that's like, Mother, father, I haven't heard from you in two weeks now. And, like, him getting picked up at the end of the movie, it's, like, father it's his... Father couldn't pa- make it? Yeah. Ma- father couldn't make it? No. It's like, okay. Well, the funny thing about this, too, is, uh, if you know much about Spider-Man lore, you also know Flash becomes Venom in the future. And they might be even setting that up for, like, why he would be a villain. Because uh, the way the symbiotes work is they tend to, like, uh, amplify raw emotions, too. So if he's actually feeling really sad and, like, aggressive and all that stuff... That just makes Venom stronger and in those aspects. very easy for him to end up turning against Spider-Man because, like, he's built up Spider-Man to be this great hero, and all it's going to take is his parents to die or something, and Spider-Man to have tried to save them and failed or something, and then in his moment, Spider-Man fails him, and he immediately, it becomes his life goal to destroy Spider-Man for... Pretending to be this awesome hero only to die, or the, only to fail. The cool thing about that is where he idolizes Spider-Man too, that could also explain why Venom would take on the look of Spider-Man as well. Uh, where yeah. it's like, I'm gonna be better than Spider-Man. I'm gonna be a Spider-Man. By exactly. killing Spider-Man! I'm gonna be a better Spider-Man, yeah. Well, that pretty much sums up everything I've wanted to say about the movie. Yeah, that's about it for me too. Yep, yeah, uh, essentially, uh, I'll hit all the points there. I had a feeling we'd come back to Marvel movies, but, uh, again, we're going to come back to them a lot, I feel. I feel like every time one of them comes up, we'll end up talking about it. Maybe one of these days we'll actually have a podcast about it. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. But yeah. It's a possible topic, but we'll, we'll sit on it for a minute. Yeah. yeah. Take but, our time. <laughs> but uh, Thank you for listening to the podcast today, and, uh, again, we can be found at all major podcast locations, Spotify, Apple Music, on a web browser, whatever you like. Uh, please make sure to rate and review if you can. Uh, definitely does help with it. Leave a message, give whatever score you want. Just the interaction itself is enough to know to all our listener. And of course, if you have any questions, have a message like read out or anything along those lines, maybe even a topic you'd like to hear, you can email us at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. Yeah, uh, dangerous precedent to send, but I like the way you put it, Keith. If you have a message you want us to read out on the podcast, send us an email. There's like a 90% chance that we'll read out your message, unless it's like very aggressive and directed towards Matt. If it's aggressive and directed towards me, we're absolutely going to read it out. But we'll probably shield Matt from the harm. In fact, I might just read it out and then not tell you afterwards that it was an email. (laughs) Oh, of course. Or you can always uh, email us if you know where Nick Fury's shoes are. Yeah, if you happen to know the future of the MCU vis-a-vis Nick Fury's shoes, please let us know. That was the one thing we have no theories about because we're all very lost right now. Is our one listener Kevin Feige? this too and Dormammu's gone.